Kevin Phillips first became widely known for the emerging Republican majority, used by Richard Nixon in his successful 1968 presidential campaign, published in 1969, that book predicted a new era of GOP control of the presidency based on the realignment of the South, which Newsweek described as, quote, the political Bible of the Nixon administration. I can tell you firsthand that it worked. Uh, I graduated from the University of North Carolina in the fall of 1971 and uh, almost immediately went to work in my first job, which was working in a political campaign for a United States congressman from the 4th District of North Carolina, a Duke University business law professor who had been in Congress for three terms at that moment. His name was Nick Galifianakis. Frustrated by constantly being redistricted by North Carolina's conservative state legislature, Nick decided to run for the Senate, and, um, and I rapidly became his statewide campaign media coordinator because I was willing to work for free. Um, and, uh, and, and in a political climate that was rapidly changing at that time, along the lines articulated in Kevin's book, um, Congressman Galifianakis actually unseated in the primary, uh, with my tiny increment of help, an incumbent Democratic senator named B. Everett Jordan. It was the first time that an, an incumbent Democratic United States senator had been beaten in a primary in the South in more than 100 years. It happened partially because of the seismic political shifts that Kevin cited in his book, The Emerging Republican Majority, and the follow-up to the story is that we lost the general election by one and a half percentage points to Jesse Helms, who wound up serving 30 years in the Senate, to the utter blight of the Republic. And, and uh, we lost uh, amid the Nixon versus McGovern landslide, again, by a point and a half, while uh, uh, a man named James Holzhauser was winning the North Carolina governorship uh, from Skipper Bowles by about six or seven percentage points and becoming the first Republican governor of a state like that in quite a long time. This was the beginning of the reconstruction of the whole political image of the South into what it is now, the solid Republican South, as opposed to what used to be the solid Democratic South, and that's a primary subject in Kevin's book, The Emerging Republican Majority. If you had told me in 1972, particularly on the heartbreaking night when we lost to Jesse Helms, that 34 years later, I would offer a laudatory introduction to Kevin Phillips. <laughs> I would have told you you were completely out of your mind. But life is strange. People evolve. I don't know that I did. Certainly Mr. Phillips has. And it's a sign of overwhelming intelligence. Thank you. After Ronald Reagan's election in 1980, Phillips was generally acknowledged as the Republican Party's principal electoral theory expert. In 1982, the Wall Street Journal described him as, quote, the leading conservative electoral analyst, uh, analyst the man who invented the Sun Belt, named the new right, was prophetic regarding the emerging Republican majority. Too bad. In 1978, Phillips became a radio commentator for CBS News. In 84, for National Public Radio, commentator for CBS Television News during the 84, 88, 1992, and 1996 election seasons and conventions. And beginning with the emerging Republican majority, he has published a total of 12 books. Their titles offer an overview of the exceptional scope of Phillips's work, and all of it is extremely scholarly stuff. Mediocracy, American Parties and Politics in the Communications Age post-conservative America, 
staying on top, the business case for a national industrial strategy, the politics of rich and poor, wealth and electorate in the Reagan aftermath, boiling point, Democrats, Republicans, and the decline of middle-class prosperity, arrogant capital, with an A, not an O, Washington, Wall Street, and the frustration of American politics, the Cousins Wars, religion, politics, and the triumph of Anglo-America, that book presages much of what is in Kevin's new book, American Theocracy. Also, Wealth and Democracy, A Political History of the American Rich, William McKinley, A Rare Biography, American Dynasty, Aristocracy, Fortune, and the Politics of Deceit in the House of Bush. Great title. 2004. And his latest, American Theocracy, The Peril and Politics of Radical Religion, Oil, and Borrowed Money, much of the content of which I'm sure he'll be speaking about tonight. Published uh, in 2004, American Dynasty rose to number two on the New York Times bestseller list, was one of that year's most talked about books. Phillips lives in Litchfield County, Connecticut with his wife Martha. For two decades he was a commentator for National Public Radio and the Los Angeles Times. He occasionally wrote for Time and Harper's. He did not support George H.W. Bush in the 1988 and 92 presidential elections or George W. Bush in the fraudulent elections of 2000 and 2004. Both fraudulent. In 2002, he re-registered as a political independent. He still has much time left in his life to someday come all the way to knowledge and wisdom and to re-identify himself once again as a liberal Democrat. I know that's what I'm hoping for. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Kevin Phillips. Well, thank you, Dan and Jim. It may be a bit of a wait. I'm watching them very carefully this year, and this is the big opportunity for the Democrats. And it's also the big risk, because if they can't really make strides against George W. Bush and the Republicans in this 2006 election year, it's what we call a six-year itch, which is the midterm elections in the second term of a second-term president. Normally, the party out of power makes major gains, and the Democrats have to make major gains just to measure up to history. And if they don't, I think what you could see would be a revivified administration and Republican Party basically able to point to the record books and say, hey, you know, there we were on the ropes and these guys couldn't do it, and now let's go back to what we wanted to do in the first place. So it's a very high stakes year, and to anticipate what's going to happen in it I think is a little bit risky. And I'll be glad to come back to some of the election stuff in, in questions, but let me at this point turn to the larger thrust of the book, the title of which is American Theocracy, The Peril and Politics of Radical Religion, Oil and Borrowed Money. Now, basically what this trio represents is my analysis of the three principal perils that face the United States as of the early 21st century. Now, somebody might say, what about terrorism? What about global anarchy? What about the, the coming unglued of the Middle East? And I think my answer to that would be that that's taken care of in two of the titles. The first is Radical Religion, 
whether it be in the United States or in Islam or for that matter even in Israel. The second is the extent to which the destabilization of the Middle East over a century, but especially over the years since 1973, has been very much a matter of oil. And if you take the combination of oil and combative religion, I think you have much of the seedbed of, of what's happened on the terrorist front and in a larger sense in the Middle East. Now, in going over these subjects, I found myself going back in history and looking at the previous leading world economic powers. And the reason I say that, it's, it's long title, kind of clumsy. Leading world economic power. This is to rule out a great power that did not have this larger global role, whether it be a, a Russia in the 1950s or a Germany in the early 20th century, or for that matter, France back in the 18th century. What I'm looking at here are really the leading world powers that have been a combination of an empire of sorts, the leading economic power in the world, and, and almost always either the leading military power or the leading naval power as well. And when you look at what the problems have been that have tended to pull the rugs out from under those great powers, you get a very interesting selection. And it's probably appropriate, given the, uh, the nature of what you do here, even the name of the hall, to talk a little bit about not just simply the role of religion in the coming unglued of these great powers, but the very important corollary that in, in the previous nations that I've mentioned, you had a, a problem of the conflict between science and religion. As religion got stronger, the competition between faith and science grew greater, and that was obviously not to the advantage of the countries involved. So the yardsticks, and I'm not going to dwell on this too long, but just as a quick uh, pass-through, the yardsticks that these leading world economic powers, which is to say Rome, Habsburg, Spain, when they controlled most of the Mediterranean and probably almost half of Europe, the Dutch when New York was New Amsterdam, and the heyday of Dutch power, global maritime supremacy in, in the 17th century, then Britain, and of course now as the tail end Charlie with many of the same trends, the United States. Now, the first thing they had in common was that it was always possible in the later years as things started to go wrong to have a dialogue within the country and question about decay. There was always concern that the economy was starting to slip. People on the progressive side would say that the distribution of income kept getting more and more unfair. The rich got richer and, and people in the, the middle and bottom started to slip. There was an awful lot of complaint about uh, hunger and poverty, even though the countries in question were, relatively speaking, quite rich. And on the conservative side, the decay was generally analyzed to be more a question of morals, uh, culture, uh, decadence. There generally was some issue, certainly in, in the ones that I mentioned, of homosexuality became a debate. Uh, there was a general sense that culture had gotten too permissive, just as the liberal progressive equivalent was that the economy had become too permissive to those at the top and against the interest of those at the bottom. So this whole decay aspect, which we hear about frequently today in the polls that say large numbers of Americans, a solid majority, think the country is on the wrong track. But then they disagree on exactly what the wrong track is. The second thing that became clear in looking at the pattern of these previous 
leading world powers was that they had difficulties with over-enthusiastic and over-evangelical and even crusading religion. And the first example was anybody who's actually gotten through the Gibbon book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and I bet you not many of you had. I've started it a couple of times, and it was really pretty heavy going, but as one of the, the new breakthroughs of the 20th century in education is you can always find a seven or eight page summary of anything. <laughs> and generally speaking, the summaries of uh, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire have Gibbon explaining it with religion. Instead of the easygoing polytheism of the uh, earlier Rome when they had gods for everything imaginable, Constantine in the 4th century AD turned towards Christianity and it eventually became the state religion. It became a, a persecuting state religion as far as the people who worshipped the old gods or Jews or people in, in the Christian church who had a different view of Christianity as some of the people on the frontier did. Now to make a long story short, this religious crescendo at the end of the Roman Empire was part of its problem. It overreached. Uh, religion has been part of an overreaching, but it's also part of a moralizing and part of a uh, war on science occasionally. The, the next country to have a major problem with religion was Habsburg Spain. They were dedicated to the Inquisition within Spain, to the notion of Spain functioning as an arm of the Catholic Church in both military campaigns in Europe and global relations, especially in the Americas. And a lot of historians basically agree that this uh, intemperate and excessive Catholicism was a fundamental problem for Spain, and again, very much in terms of suppression of science. There really wasn't much science in Spain, so there wasn't much to suppress. But some of what there was could be nipped in the bud pretty easily. At one point in time, they were talking about uh, two rivers being linked by a canal, so they convened, this was in the 16th century, they convened an ecclesiastical commission that decided that, well, if God had wanted the two rivers to be joined, he would have joined them. So you, you didn't need to have the canal, and that was interference with the prerogative of the Almighty. And such was science in Spain. Um, and Rome, when it was under Spanish domination in the 17th century, that's when they uh, imprisoned Galileo for his uh, essentially astronomical decision that what went, around, what went around what in terms of planets and sun was not what the church thought it was. And he didn't do well for that. So there's a pretty strong pattern of this uh, science and faith being at loggerheads. The next of the countries to look at isn't such a great example. I can explain it, and I'd be wasting six or eight minutes with half analogies, so I'll pass. But it's, it's the Dutch, and they're much more important than the other analogies. Then you get the British. And it's not a country you would think of as having gone overboard with religion, but it did in the 19th century. Part of what you had in, in British Protestantism was a moral imperialism, that everybody should bow to Britain as this practitioner of justice and representative government and Christian thinking and so forth. Very self-preening, the British. And at that point in time, it was tied to their evangelical Protestantism. And as... 1914 approached, some of this evangelical tide was receding, but the, the concept of empire 
as an extension of religion and Britain bringing enlightenment to a sort of backward world. It was very much front and center. They were, in a sense, crusaders. And I'm not certain how much they believed about bringing democracy to the Middle East, for example, because they did say so, but hardly anybody took them seriously. But they took very much seriously the notion of Britain as this uh, superbly qualified, politically just country that was doing things for the benefit of others. And hardly, hardly anybody else really agreed with that, but that's what they thought, and they believed it. Now, they had problems with religion and science, too. The, uh, the first round of evolution under Charles Darwin, who was in Britain, came in the UK, and promptly a lot of the churchmen and some of the political leaders, like Prime Minister uh, uh, Gladstone, were loggerheads with Darwin and evolution, and they were sticking up for the religious side and basically saying that faith was more important and stick with the Bible. So there was the leading world economic power of that time caught up on some of the same stuff that we see now uh, under the Bush administration. So the extent to which this combination of decay in its multiple forms, then religion as a kind of crusading ambition, and then science versus faith has been a problem down through the years. Uh, the next one, which is worth noting, is that there's always been an interest in a millennial-type circumstance, which is to say the sense of the end times, the barbarians closing in on Rome made them think of the end times, the possibility of Armageddon. You'd always find speculation on who in the world was the Antichrist, and it was always very political. The, uh, the British, after Spain had launched the Armada, thought that Philip of Spain was the Antichrist. The Dutch thought it was Louis XIV of France. The British, even in uh, 1914, were talking about Armageddon. There have been books written about simply the uh, extent to which the British were caught up in this, oh, I would say almost a craze that uh, the world was heading for this kind of chaos and that they were the ones who would straighten it all out. And Rupert Brooke, a famous poet, wrote a poem, if, if this is Armageddon, one has to be there, and so forth. And, uh, it was Armageddon, in a sense. The, the butchery in World War I was extraordinary, and by the time it was all over, the people and the uh, religious leaders in many of the countries in Europe lost a lot of credibility because it, it hadn't produced a rapture, it hadn't produced a millennium, it didn't produce a second coming, it just produced about 40 or 60 million dead people. And something like that, I suppose, could happen again. But there really has been, in a recurrent basis, the sense uh, among these leading powers that something was building towards Armageddon or the end times. So that when I come back to it and talk about it in the United States, it's not only not new, it was something that you saw quite frequently in these previous countries. And it's a, it's a very unusual uh, set of precedents. The other thing that can be said, sort of to wind up here, about the previous leading world economic powers is that they were always overreaching in terms of what they tried to do in military and naval and great power terms. And they often didn't understand that they were overreaching because they had a, an overblown view of themselves and their power. It's often the case that even when you've started to turn down as a great nation, you still conceive of yourself as perhaps stronger than you ever were before. And it's usually not the case. And this happened, obviously, with Rome, but with the Spanish in the 17th century in Europe. And they, they wound up getting into a lot of debt because they spent so much money to try to do all these things for the Catholic Church, and it didn't work. 
So they wound up having overreached themselves strategically and militarily and having added a huge amount of debt, which then became a major force in uh, bringing down the importance and uh, economic solvency of Spain. The Dutch uh, overreached in a major way militarily and navally and had to borrow a lot of money during the period from 1689 to 1713, which was almost relentlessly war in Europe. And by the time that war was over, the, the British had basically passed the Dutch, the Dutch being allies of the British, but the British took advantage of the war and the Dutch paid for a lot of it and, and fell behind. And they too wound up with a whole lot of debt in a, uh, an economy that increasingly resolved on lending and borrowing and, and financial services and not much else. And then the British, the great example that most people remember somewhat, uh, Britain with its huge empire in 1914, was the biggest creditor nation in the world. They had huge resources. The, the amount of money they were owed by people overseas was a, many, many times a multiple of their national debt. There was just no contest. They, they were the top dog in terms of international finance. Two wars later, World Wars I and II, which stretched British resources, military and economic, to a painful and unsustainable level, uh, produced victory, yes. They nominally won in World War I and World War II, but at the cost of liquidating their empire and winding up as a major international debtor, as the British were by 1947 or 48. The one time previously that a declining leading world economic power, the British were really no longer were in 1947 or 48, but they had a current account deficit that was about 7 to 8% of GDP. The reason I say that is because the United States is now in that same numerical range, and for the British it was a signal of disaster because essentially they had to uh, devalue their currency and accept a, uh, a major decline in British glo the British uh, global status. So all of this is something of a prelude to touching on the United States, but you can probably see many of the directions that I'd be going in. The last thing to note about these precedents is the last two major leading world economic powers, the Dutch and the British, each also owed part of their importance to a very idiosyncratic uh, energy base, which they made terrific use of. The Dutch used wind and water. They used wind and water in an incredibly creative way. Their ships had the best design. Their fishing fleets were the most efficient. Their whaling industry was the most efficient, and their ships were good for whaling. Uh, there wasn't really anything on water powered by wind that they couldn't do. They used wind and water to drain. A lot of Holland was uh, drained. The sea was pushed back. They built dikes, and they put the land into uh, agriculture. They used windmills as little factories, and the parchment on which the Declaration of Independence was penned in uh, 1776 was the product of one of the still surviving windmills in Holland that was essentially a high-quality paper plant. So the Dutch did all kinds of things with wind and water. Once those two were over, once they were surpassed by something else, the Dutch lost their edge. Those were the two things that they had done very well and very idiosyncratically. The British were the idiosyncratic coal power. They had a lot of coal in, in Britain. Uh, from the Tudor days on, 16th century and 17th century with the Stuarts, they did more and more things with coal. Visitors to Britain would comment on coal and how they used it and the industrial uses that were starting to be put to. Coal also was the industry in which they developed 
essentially the steam engines and pumps and the industry that also gave rise to the railways because the first railways were in essence just based on gravity and they went from the mines down to the coast where they shipped the coal to London. As soon as they had a steam engine, somebody said, hey, we can mechanize this. And they did, and you got railroads. And by the time you hit the 1820s, then railroading started in Britain before any other country. And they built up that system, which enabled their exports to be taken to the port cities. And the whole thing was just a never-ending process of building on coal and its strength and its consequences. And Britain really only finally slipped economically when, as one of the great passages of the 20th century, energy primacy passed to oil, which was the idiosyncratic creature of the United States. We had dominated oil since the 18th century in the whaling fleets of Massachusetts, which brought back whale oil. And even in the early 19th century, people drilling for salt water and salt in the Ohio Valley would bring up a certain amount of oil, and they didn't really know what to do with it. It wasn't in very usable form. But Americans were working oil almost from the start. And by the time the first oil well was drilled in Pennsylvania in 1859, the United States moved quickly into the lead in terms of global oil production. And Standard Oil of Ohio was the one, the, uh, the business that led it. By World Wars I and II, we provided the oil that sustained the Allies and basically beat the Germans in the two wars. So the United States rode oil to global leadership, to global industrial leadership, to a, a national blueprint and system that was sustained by transportation, both airplanes and, uh, and automo automobiles, motor vehicles, and a whole country built up in a way that could use energy with a, uh, an abandon that nobody else could. And then, of course, our, our oil production peaked in 1970, and a whole new set of questions have come to the fore about oil. But I think we're very much at risk as oil loses its importance in the world because it's going to fall further and further behind demand and people will have to develop other things. We're also producing less and less of the oil we need, and I really doubt that the United States can have the leadership role at such point as we don't have much oil or the ability to buy it. It's hard for me to imagine that, that we can overcome that and maintain the role we had when oil was the American equivalent of Dutch wind and water. Well, let me go on from here to the question, which is probably the more important one, certainly in terms of the reaction and what's caught popular interest, is to dwell on the radical religion. Now, the aspect of radical religion, as I mentioned, has been much in the forefront of uh, the problems of previous countries. They've had a religious component of, of overreach, of being too cocky, of trying to do militarily what they could no longer do, of getting in debt, been through all of that in a very quick way. The religious radicalism of the United States is, is a fascinating thing, and it, it did, as, as you've heard, go back in my mind to some of what I wrote about the American Civil War and the Cousins Wars. Now, the Cousins Wars was a book that was about the formative importance in Anglo-America of the three principal English-speaking civil wars. Now, these were the English Civil War, English Revolution in the middle of the 17th century, the American Revolution, which was in many ways a British Civil War, and then the American Civil War, which actually had very real parallels in the internal division within the British Isles. So all of these things had a lot in common, and they all had a very, very heavy interplay of religion with politics and war. 
And that created a sense in my mind as a backdrop to how I got into American theocracy of the role that religion had played in American politics and war and how much of the role it had played in the Civil War and the way in which that in turn recycled as a major factor in the most recent American religious political developments that matter so much. Now, let me, having said that, turn back to the question of what has made American religion radical. And some of it is its European inheritance. We got people from all the pacifist and Baptist sects in Germany. We got uh, Jewish refugees. We got Quakers from Britain. We got Baptists from Britain, Methodists who were a, uh, an anti, a non-establishmentarian denomination in the UK, Catholics from Ireland, uh, Protestant refugees from all over Germany. And an awful lot of the time, these were people that had a considerable exposure to the Bible. They were not simply Protestants, which they mostly were, or Catholics, but they were Bible-reading people. Their denominations were biblical. They believed in a personal religion, not a liturgical, uh, hierarchical religion. They believed in a personal relationship with God. Uh, and they also believed in an emotional type of religion that would have shaking and quaking and revivals and speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit taking possession so that your voice was actually uttering somebody else's thoughts. All of this was much more common in the United States than it was in, in Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries. And revival after revival would feed this and extend it. And in each of these centuries, there was a continuing growth in the more radical forms of religion. And usually, they kept growing and they would outpace the denominations that were becoming sedentary and establishmentarian. This wasn't understood as well as it should have been from more or less the time of the Civil War down to World War II because everybody got a sense of what the religious historians wanted to promote, that there were these great denominations uh, on the Protestant side that were Methodist and uh, Presbyterians, Presbyterians USA, uh, some Baptists, but not the Southern variety, uh, Congregationalists, Episcopalians. These were the denominations that were thought to represent the, the mainstream of American Christianity, thus the name mainline Protestant. And through 1950 or even 1960, the portrait of the Republican Party in a religious sense was Episcopalian and Presbyterian and Congregationalist and so forth. The mainline, reasonably uh, uh, prosperous and establishmentarian Protestant denominations. But even as they seem to have the dominating image, in fact, the growth in the denominations was uh, strongest in the, the outsider churches, the evangelical, the fundamentalist, the Pentecostal, many, many denominations, but the leader among them was the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention was uh, sort of the state church of the South after the Civil War. They wouldn't go back with the Northern Baptists, so they kept Southern Baptist. And not being willing to go back with the Northern Baptists, they basically competed all across the border states and then into the West and the Far West and even up to Alaska. And by the time you get to the end of the 20th century, there are 20 million members of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, spread all over, totally dominating the Protestant uh, side of the equation from the uh, southern part of Maryland across 
lower West Virginia into the Ohio Valley, out to Missouri, and then down to Kansas and Oklahoma, and then west through New Mexico, and sort of petering out there. But if you take states where the Southern Baptist Convention is one of the four leading denominations, then you get uh, most of the Rocky Mountain states. You you get, uh, by some counts at least, California. You even get Alaska. So the growth of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention has been extraordinary. And this is a very fundamentalist sect. Not all Southern Baptists are fundamentalists, but their leading element, the people who controlled the convention for 25 years now, are fundamentalist and very conservative and now very, very Republican. Now, the significance of this, and it's been a very much a, a fast glimpse through it. I'm not dotting I's and crossing T's. Uh, I don't want to get bogged down in too much detail here, but to make a long story short, the, the real changes in American religion and politics that we're talking about now go back to when essentially the South started to be harnessed on the Republican side, and slowly but surely, the South not only became Republican, but became the most Republican region, and in many ways the dominant region within the Republican Party. In 1994, when the Republicans took control of the House and the Senate, you promptly had a list of Republican leaders in the two houses that came from Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas. Uh, it wasn't Northern. They had enough that they pretty much ran the show. That's not as overt now because it doesn't seem such a good idea, but it's still pretty lopsidedly Southern. Now, the importance of what happened in the movement of the South into the Republican Party was that it changed the religious relationships of the parties and the American electorate. The Republicans had long had the bulk of Northern Protestantism. They were the religious party in the sense of the... uh, party that had most of the church-going Protestants, but certainly not all of them, and church-going Catholics tended to be democratic, let's say in the 40s or 50s or even into the 60s. Now, as the, uh, the South became Republican, the great bulk of the fundamentalist uh, Pentecostals and evangelicals shifted into the Republican Party. At the same time, there was a pretty substantial movement in the northern cities of northern ethnic Catholics into the Republican Party. So the Republicans were being fed by these two streams, which tended to make them more religious. Uh, A higher percentage of Republicans would go to church, and a higher percentage of people who went to church would vote Republican. The Democrats, on the other hand, became more secular as they lost their uh, old-line ethnic machines and, and ethnic members in the northern cities, as they lost their uh, Southern Baptists and their members of the Assemblies of God, the Pentecostals and uh, other evangelical denominations in the South, uh, that made the Democrats less and less religious, more and more secular, more representative of the Northeast and the upper Midwest and the Pacific Coast, and especially areas that were wealthy, reasonably wealthy, and highly educated where there was a lot of science or technology or universities or a lot of what could be called the knowledge sector in a broader way like the research triangle in North Carolina and so forth. So the Democrats were picking up a a very significant cultural difference because of the movement of the South. Uh, This was accelerated in the 1990s and and the early uh, 21st century by two other phenomena that made the Republicans more religious. The first was the uh, extracurricular adventures of President William Jefferson Clinton. 
These were not necessarily admired in secular America, but they didn't cause a huge upset. But in the areas of the South and elsewhere where you had the highest percentage of churchgoers, uh, the people who were churchgoers, especially in the South again, uh, were very, very upset. It only furthered their movement into the Republican Party. And by 2000 and 2002, and they'd seen some of this even in 1994, the movement of the religious South was not just into the presidential Republican Party, but into the congressional Republican Party. So you were also seeing this religification of the Republicans in Congress. And you got to the point where we were in the last couple of years, where a lot of these members would be fighting to maintain perfect 100% voting records with a Christian coalition and things like that. It's not that they asked you to vote an extraordinary group of issues, but there were quite a few extraordinary ones in there. And a lot of it was just sort of across-the-board Republicanism, but that's how close these religious groups in the Republican Party have gotten. Then, of course, in, in, after 9-11, the response of the Bush administration to much of this, and I'll come back to the, the Bush aspect, was religion-based. Not only did Bush at first react to 9-11 as calling for a crusade, but he picked up, and especially the, uh, the churches that support him in the South and elsewhere picked up, a uh, very strong degree of religious coloration of his language in how he identified the country's problems. A number of the news magazines would actually take, uh, make charts of the things that he had said that had religious significance, not just in the generalized religious uh, wording of a speech, but a, a more specific reference to a, either a favorite hymn or some religious symbol or words from the Bible. And a number of theologians have analyzed his speeches as being double-coded, in essence, that they had one relatively bland, although fairly religious, uh, superficiality. But then for no, those who knew the Bible well or were very much into all the scholarship of different aspects of religion, the intensity rose considerably. And it was very successful. Uh, certainly the, the percentages of support, job approval that Bush got in 2002, he was often in the uh, 70s and sometime in the 80s, reflected how many Americans had been steered into an essentially religious interpretation of the war against terror as being a fight between good and evil. And this was really quite central to uh, what he was looking at. Now, further than this, I'll give you a little bit of statistics, but not a whole lot here. What started to become clear in 1988 and 1992 was that the Republican vote was becoming a lot more religious in the sense that people who frequently went to church or other religious services, the more frequently they did, the more likely they were to vote Republican for president. And this was not simply confined to Protestants. It was also true of Catholics. So that instead of having in New England, for example, in the 1950s, you would have had High church-going Protestants would have been Republicans. High church-going Catholics would be Democrats. That distinction basically fell away, and by 88 and 92, several professors who studied these uh, circumstances in great detail were saying that the, uh, the movement of religious people, both Catholic and Republican, was making the Republicans a religious party in the sense we had not had in the United States before. And I think that's true. You got to the point where in 2000 and 2004, those who went to church frequently were 14, 15, 16 percent more Republican than the average American, 
and those who were principally secular and didn't go to church were as much more democratic than the average American. So you were creating a, a hierarchy of religious participation whereby the people who were the most vehemently secular or relatively disinterested in religion would be heavily democratic and those at the other end of the spectrum would be heavily republican. By 2000 and 2004, you were also getting a movement among Jewish voters, uh, not among all Jews, but among Orthodox Jews, they became very heavily Republican. These would be the, uh, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the names of the ones that are, the Hasidim in Brooklyn and the Lubavitchers in different parts of the United States. And it was estimated that the Orthodox vote in 2004 was about 8 or 9% of the total and it went at least 90% for George W. So that Orthodox Jews were, if anything, more Republican than white Southern evangelicals. So what you've got there is the ultimate biblical alliance. <laughs> and I take it very seriously. I really do. I think it's very important. Uh, another aspect that came to the fore is the Republicans collected the religious electorate within the United States. If you looked at the polls, I'll do this here for a minute, just briefly, on, this is the theocratic inclinations of the Republican electorate. Should religious leaders try to influence politicians' positions on the issues? And the latter goes from white conservative evangelicals who say yes by 62% to 37, down to seculars who say no by 77 to 22. And you go straight down the list, and in the middle you get Catholics, the national sample, independents, but right down only one notch above the seculars, you get non-evangelical Protestants who are opposed to religious leaders trying to influence politicians' positions on the issues by 70% to 27%. That is essentially mainline Protestantism. These are the denominations that were the Republican sort of semi-established churches of the suburban and rural north. And that the likelihood that you're going to be able to happily keep camping together, the mainline Protestants and the uh, evangelicals and, and fundamentalists and Pentecostals of the South. I don't believe it. Uh, even for Kerry, who was not the most effective candidate, the mainline Protestants started moving somewhat more democratic. And I think as all of these issues heat up, that more and more of that is going to happen. Uh, whether or not the fundamentalists and evangelicals will still be so enthusiastic about George W. isn't totally clear. Uh, if they're not, they may start staying at home, and if they start staying at home, then this huge turnout that they've been building for 15 or 20 years could shrink, and in a way that changed a lot of the political balance. But it's, it's hard to say at this point what's likely to happen. Now let me turn to the questions of George W. Bush's religiosity and the extent to which the, the new politics of religion has pushed the Republican coalition in the United States into a series of policy positions that are very tricky in the Middle East and they're very tricky in science, whether it's stem cell research or the, the global campaign for abstinence or the putting a faith healer under the advisory board of the Food and Drug Administration. <laughs> or having creationist literature in the store of the National Park Service at the Grand Canyon. And I'm absolutely serious about it. That's just beginning to touch the top of the, uh, the, the soil there. There's a lot of this. There's also climate change. 
There's also the sense on the part of the very biblically committed Republicans that the Earth is only 7,000 years old, and in consequence, petroleum geology can't really mean anything because it's not a million years old and all that nonsense. Uh, so basically, if, if you can't use petroleum geology, then oil can't be about to run out because we, we can't base it on petroleum geology with all of these things that disregard the real age of the Earth. And this, this means that you don't have to worry about peak oil. The notion that geologists can tell you about peak oil is, is nonsense. It's sort of the same view that climate change can't tell you, and then carbon dioxide can't tell you much about the, uh, the atmosphere. It's God's atmosphere. God provides. I'm not trying to be too cynical here. I haven't seen terribly good explanations of this. That may be a slight misstatement, but it's not too far off. Basically, this is where we're starting to get our contest between science and religion. Now, George W. Bush has a fascinating history in terms of his personal religion. Um, he found God in 1985 and 86 at the time when the bottom was falling out of the oil industry, in which he was a particularly unsuccessful participant. Uh, more or less at the same time, he was having a major problem with a bourbon bottle. <laughs> And people often turn to faith in periods of crisis, and I think George W. did. Uh, by the time 1987 and 88 rolled around, having been born again and being very committed to all of this, he was his father's liaison to the religious right when his father ran for president. Now, the religious right had never liked George H.W. Bush because he was so Episcopalian and preppy. They didn't trust his commitment to uh, the America of the chapels and the Southern Baptist Convention churches up in the mountains. I'm sure they were right. But nevertheless, um, George H.W. was concerned to really make a bid for this vote. He did it very successfully, and George W. was his principal liaison. George W., in, in this role, orchestrated such milestones of, uh, of culture as the first meeting between uh, George H.W. and Barbara Bush and Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. You can imagine how impressed Barbara was by Tammy Faye. <laughs> but they, they kept going in this direction and made the sacrifice. And, and George H.W. actually did very well with the, uh, the Southern vote and beat, uh, ultimately even in 1992, beat Bill Clinton, who was a Southern Baptist, as was Al Gore, among Southern Baptists. It told you how much the terrain was shifting. But George W. was very unusual in the sense that he came up in national politics because of his father in this very religious orbit. And then when he went to Texas, uh, that's probably the biggest of the states that has close cooperation between the religious right and the business community. So he imbibed all of that and learned how you could keep them working together and thought that was pretty much the normative politics and took it like that. Now, when he was running... For president in 1999, he is said to have told an audience of preachers that he thought God wanted him to be president. Now, this is generally acknowledged to have happened, but I, I don't think there's any tape or any totally firm evidence of it. The White House, as far as I know, doesn't really deny that, although some of Bush's advocates will deny it if, if they're off by themselves in an interview or something. But he was taken very seriously by the people in the religious right, and supposedly he had spoken to one of their uh, the meetings of the Council for National Policy. Now, this was the uh, sort of clandestine conservative uh, 
group, political group, that was founded by Tim LaHaye, who more recently has been the author of the Left Behind series. And supposedly George H.W. made some commitments, I don't know what they were, to the religious right people who attended this meeting. Then, of course, in 2002, uh, after 9-11, the Washington Post did a survey of the religious right leaders in Washington and asked them who was going to replace Pat Robertson as the leader of the religious right. And they discussed this among themselves, and uh, I'm sure they had before, but they all pretty much agreed that it was clear from 9-11 that God had known that George W. Bush had to be president at this moment of crisis and evaluations like that. And they fundamentally agreed that George W. Bush was now the leader of the religious right. And that was the first time, as the, uh, the reporter who wrote the story said, the first time in American history that the president of the United States had also been designated the leader of the religious right. And that tells you how seriously they take his commitment. And I think were that commitment to be disbelieved by more and more of the rank and file, it would go very, very hard for him, because I really do think they believe it. And I think he's at least quite substantially sincere about his view of himself. Now, after the invasion of Iraq, he was quoted in some Middle Eastern newspapers. And this the White House categorically denies. They say it's not true. The newspapers quoted him as saying, God told me to invade Afghanistan, and I did. God told me to invade Iraq, and I did. And God told me to bring calm or a solution to the Middle East or something, and I did. This is in 2003, after the invasion. More or less about the same time he was asked a question, did he seek his father's advice, the former president's advice, on Iraq? And he said no, no, he had had spoken, only spoken to a higher father. I think that was the way that he put it, which is theologically interesting. You know, exactly what role does he see for himself in this? Whose son is he? It's one of these questions that sooner or later the media have got to convene a whole bunch of theologians and go over this stuff pretty carefully. And the theologians have had a lot to say about it already, but it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, later, in 2004, George W. was at a meeting of uh, Old Order Amish in Pennsylvania, the Plain People, and he had a private meeting with them. And then that meeting broke up, and some of the Amish were grilled by reporters who were on hand. Tell us, you know, what did the president say? This was the quote in the Lancaster, Pennsylvania paper. Now, for those of you who don't know, Lancaster, Pennsylvania is in the heart of the Red Belt of southern Pennsylvania. I mean, this is really left-wing territory. This is all these uh, German and Amish farmers. It's so conservative, it's about four-to-one Republican. So this is not uh, not a bunch of liberals. The reporter quoted him as follows, I trust God speaks through me. Without that, I couldn't do my job. Um, That's a very interesting sentence, because basically he's assuming that he's sort of the voice, or that he interprets, or something like that. And as far as I know, the White House has not disavowed this, but I understand that some of the, uh, the, the Bush sympathizers say, well, he couldn't have said that, that's a mistake. 
So I think it's important somehow that we know exactly what he said at all these meetings and over the course of some 10 years, because I think that he, he truly views himself in some way as a very important religious What's the best way to describe it? Not by laughing, not by laughing, but not icon, but interpreter, prophet, something. I'm not sure what the best word would be, but that's something I think that if you took a whole bunch of theologians, it would be useful to discuss. Now, the importance of this, and the last thing I want to say about George W. and religion, is the interface of this change in American politics this predilection of the president and what's happening in the Middle East. What has it meant for what went on and for what has guided our policy? Now, one of the points I make in the oil part of the book is that nothing has mattered about Iraq historically more than oil. People have thought of Iraq. They've drawn the boundaries of Iraq. Oil has always been central. The maps of Iraq generally paid more attention to where the oil was than to any political boundaries. By the time we got to the end of the 20th century, the question of peak oil was starting to become important in petroleum geological uh, circles. And Dick Cheney, then the chairman of Halliburton, a major oil services firm, made a speech to the Petroleum Institute in London in which he talked about how oil was running down in the world and demand would far outstrip supply and that we were going to have a major shortfall and that uh, the crisis was coming so that by 2010 or 2012 or thereabouts, uh, we'd really be in a hole. And he didn't mince words in this, and I think that he knew enough about peak oil and some of the equipment that Halliburton manufactures is used in countries that are running out of oil or have a, an oil field that is past its prime and they want to see how much they can get out of what's left and make it as economical as possible, because normally as the oil ceases to be there in very large quantity, it becomes less and less economic to take it out. So even though it's there, it's not necessarily worth using for energy purposes. But the Halliburton equipment was very sophisticated in, in what they could do in Saudi Arabia to get more oil out of fields that were being depleted. So my sense is that Dick Cheney knew a lot about this. He knew a lot about the problems in Saudi Arabia, that there might not be as much oil there as people thought. Uh, in 2001, they had a, uh, uh, an energy task force that some of you have probably read about that they never released the records on. And that was to look at energy questions, but some of what they looked at in great detail had to do with the, the energy maps of Iraq, where the oil fields were and how big they were. And I think the major objective there, Cheney was thinking in terms of Iraq as the potential substitute for Saudi Arabia as the combination major oil source and, and military base in the Middle East. Uh, obviously, they didn't want to talk about this. Now, the reason they didn't want to talk about it brings me to the last point that I'll explain and then stop. It's the extraordinary percentage of Americans, most of them in the Republican Party now, who believe in the end times and Armageddon in the sense that the book of Revelations is coming true, uh, Tim LaHaye, who headed this Council for National Policy, was also the author of the Left Behind series, which is a 12 or 13 volume series, basically on the rapture and the end times and Armageddon. And it, it takes place in the Middle East, obviously. It takes place in Iraq, which is the new Babylon. Baghdad is the new Babylon. 
Saddam Hussein, by a number of the polls of the evangelicals, was a leaning candidate to be the Antichrist. But in this Tim LaHaye book, the uh, Antichrist is, is already around. He's in Iraq, and he emerged through the United Nations. Where else? Uh, and he had a French advisor. You know, never better. And most of all, the Antichrist was the one who dealt in oil, not, not the good guys. The good guys were fighting for religion and good versus evil, and they, they had all their trying to um, get more religious so that uh, they'd be ready for the second coming. That's grossly oversimplified and probably popularized, but sort of the larger point that if you were the good guys, <laughs> you didn't do oil. So you had this huge Republican uh, constituency, probably some 55% of the people who voted for George W. in 2000, would, if polled by Newsweek in the poll I'm citing, have answered that they believed in Armageddon and the end times, and almost as many thought the Antichrist was already alive, as is clear in the LaHaye book. So if I were Karl Rove or anybody like that, I'd be thinking that, you know, you didn't necessarily draw up your strategy based on these people, but they were a huge constituency, and you wanted to make what was happening in the Middle East somewhat consonant with their viewpoint. And he would do this by stressing good versus evil and making it all part of the war on terror, which was, of course, all part of the, the end times that were so central in the LaHaye series. And I think that worked rather well for a while, and it's just been in the last two or three years that everything's coming unraveled because they don't seem to be competent. And their ideas weren't thought out well, and they, they used bad explanations, and they misled people, and it didn't work out well. And... Now his credibility is pretty low, and his numbers are down at 34, 35, 36%. So I'm not sure where it's going to go from here, but we have an extraordinary religious element in American politics today that we haven't had before, just at a point in time when the whole question of the religion and Bible has come front and center in what's now the most important part of the world. And it's also, in a very major way, affected our ability to deal with science, the sort of science that you have to have if you're going to maintain your leadership as a leading world economic power. So I think all kinds of things are at risk here, and I think the most important thing, uh, even if we're a little pessimistic about how some of it might work out, is to force a dialogue because essentially the leaders in both parties don't really want to talk very much about all this. And the first thing you can do is, is bring some of the debate out in the open and tell politicians who'd rather not get close to controversy that Sometimes they have to.